Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. Christian, happy M. Night Shyamalan month. We are continuing to march through his works here, but moving back in time, finally. We saw his most recent movie, Knock at the Cabin, and discussed that last week. And now we are going back almost to the beginning to discuss The Sixth Sense, a movie that I had been needing to cross off my watch list for a very long time. And I'm glad that we, I, I finally forced myself to do so. How are you feeling, Christian? Any, any thoughts on this episode before we jump in? Okay. I need to ask you this question right off the bat. Okay. Did you know what the twist was for The Sixth Sense before watching it? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay, did I did too. Yes. Okay. And... The entire, I I will say, I watched this movie knowing that that twist was coming, and it affected my viewing of the movie. Okay, well, that was going to be your opening question, so (laughs) we'll we'll return to that when we actually get into our review, because I am curious how how it affected our viewing. So I do want to say right up top here, as many people know, The Sixth Sense has one of the most famous twist endings in movie history everybody knows that the quote that Haley joel osmond's character says which is i see dead people that was you know the the big breakout moment from that movie but it actually that comes out about in the middle of the movie and is not uh not the actual twist so do you want to say we are going to be talking full spoilers for this you know 25 year old movie if you have not got a chance to see the sixth sense and somehow don't know the twist i would really strongly recommend you do not continue listening to this episode you go watch the movie and then you come back and listen to it when you are ready and (laughs) won't be spoiled by us there's your blanket spoiler warning here at the top of the episode folks don't get mad at me i tried or get mad at him just don't get mad at me okay that yeah whatever christian (laughs) so the sixth sense here a little background this comes out it's actually Shyamalan's third feature film he Mm -hmm. made two movies before this one is called praying with anger which is a semi-autobiographical movie that very few people have seen partially because he made it while he was still a student at NYU's film school and it wasn't actually his student film like it was a full-blown independent drama but it just did not get a wide release at all and is hard to find these days and from what I've gathered, it doesn't really have a lot of, not really a quality film. Uh, not quite what he would get to later on in his career, so maybe that's partially why it's hard to track down. But it was successful enough to get him some attention, and then he made a studio movie after that called Wide Awake, which he actually made with Miramax. And that film was, again, not a success at all. It was made for a small budget, I think around $6 million, and didn't even make back a million at the box office. It did get some recognition from small awards groups, and the young man at the center of it, Joseph Cross, who I believe was 10 when he made the movie, was actually recognized by the Young Artist Awards, which recognize uh, young performers in Hollywood, but really no traction outside of that. So he's still, he's got some success under his belt, very young, he's in his 20s when these movies are coming out, so you know, very few people can say that they have two feature films made in their 20s. And he writes this script for what would become The Sixth Sense. And he starts trying to pass it around Hollywood. And something that just blew my mind (laughs) when I saw this is that he gets it to the then president of production at Walt Disney Studios. I don't know who got it to him. Maybe it was Shyamalan's agent. Maybe there was... Something Vogel. Yeah, David Vogel. and Who who bought it for $3 million knowing that the stipulation was that Shyamalan had to direct and did not get corporate approval. Yes. And the very next sentence on this source that we're reading is that Disney dismissed him. (laughs) So uh, he was, yeah, he did. Vogel really believed in the script, but unfortunately, Disney did not at the time. And so Vogel gets fired and put Shyamalan back in a tricky situation. But ultimately, Disney would sell the rights to Spyglass Entertainment, another studio, and they retained distribution and a percentage of the film's box office. So... Shyamalan's got his third movie up and running with Disney partially behind it, but this other studio stepping in. Now, Christian, I got to ask, did you read any of the story on how Bruce Willis got involved with this movie? Okay, I do not know how Bruce Willis got... Was it, was it something related to Die Hard? 
<laughs> it was not it was not related to Die Hard, unfortunately. Okay. But as many people know, Bruce Willis is the star of this movie. And the reason he got involved is because he was set to make a movie called Broadway Brawler. Have you ever heard of Broadway Brawler, Christian? No, I've heard of Broadway. The reason you have not is because this movie never came out. It was supposed to be distributed by Walt Disney. There was some legit talent attached to it outside of Bruce Willis. but And, and there's also like $20 million in the budget. Like It was a real full-blown in-production studio movie. And behind the scenes, the production just fell apart. And Willis says it wasn't his fault. Other sources say it was absolutely his fault. <laughs> and so this movie ultimately just gets canned, even though it's in production. And this is happening much more now, obviously. I think Batgirl is the most famous example where a studio has made a movie and is going to get ready to show it. It's in post-production, but they cancel it to save money. This was not that. This was Disney just ending production that was going downhill extremely fast. And they were going to actually sue Bruce Willis, uh, and uh, just for obvious reasons, for derailing this production. And ultimately, Willis's agent got this deal for him, where instead of having to pay this hugely expensive um, settlement in a lawsuit, <laughs> he actually agrees to a deal with Disney to make three movies. And so they said, fine, Broadway Brawler didn't work, but you're on the hook with us for three more movies at a reduced salary. Because he was at this point in his career where he was getting 20 million bucks a movie. And so, for a greatly reduced salary, he agrees to make a few more movies with Disney. The first movie that they made is Armageddon. Hallelujah. <laughs> I, still, I still haven't seen it. Christian, we, we got to get you on that. It's, it's a beautifully dumb movie. And okay, look, I, you, we, we don't need to play the game of what I have to see. I know, man. We could... We could I, I would die before I got to all the movies I have to see. It's true. It's true. It, that's the, the beauty and the pain of being a cinephile. So after Armageddon, Bruce Willis makes The Sixth Sense. And also The Kid, which is a movie where I think he meets his like child self. Uh, it, I, think I, I think I saw it when I was a kid. Like when I was a kid. Um, yeah, a 40-year-old consultant who is mysteriously confronted by an 8-year-old version of himself. All of these movies combined to make over a billion dollars at the box office. So, sorry to Bruce Willis and his reduced salary. Congratulations to Disney and their shrewd slash maybe bad business practices. <laughs> but that is how Bruce Willis gets attached in this movie. And despite all of the drama and the strange things that had to happen to get the sixth sense off the ground, obviously it becomes an enormous success. It makes $670 million at the global box office and gets six Oscar nominations at the uh, ceremony the preceding year, including for young Haley Joel Osment, who is to date still the second youngest person to ever receive, actually maybe third youngest, but second youngest male actor to receive an acting nomination. Wait, how old was he? Haley Joel, where you at, brother? He was born in the year 1988. So this movie came out when he would have been 11, probably would have been nominated when he was okay. 12. Yeah, there was a nine or ten year old kid in like the sixties or seventies whose name I have. Or maybe fifty. Cooper, back in yeah. the thirties, I think. Never mind. With uh, with Charlie Chaplin. So there you go. Yes. Um, okay. Do we, this is this is something I'm going to ask you since uh, you you do more research than I did for this movie. Do you know why Bruce Willis stayed with Shyamalan for Unbreakable, which is the follow up movie? So I. I don't know why. I haven't really looked into the story of Unbreakable. Obviously, you know, actors and directors often work together again. And when they've had a huge success like The Sixth Sense, sometimes it also makes business sense so the studio can market it as M. Night Shyamalan is back. And so is Bruce Willis. Because obviously, although Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette, who is the third lead in The Sixth Sense, both of them get Oscar nominations and Willis doesn't. They obviously go off and, and do their own things, and Willis remains a true blue movie star. So that's my guess. Uh, I'm sure Shyamalan enjoyed working with Bruce Willis. This is his third movie, but first, like, real success. And so having Willis along for the ride probably helped him. Okay, apparently Shyamalan approached Willis for the lead role in Unbreakable during filming, yeah, during filming of The Sixth Sense, um, had him and Samuel L. Jackson in mind. So wrote, started writing the script with those two things in mind. And yeah, apparently Samuel L. Jackson met Bruce Willis in a casino in Casablanca. 
So amazing. <laughs> that's okay. Cool. Dope. Dope. Have you seen Love Unbreakable it. Christian? Have you have you done some Shyamalan homework? Um, I have the I have the DVD. I've been trying I've been trying to make my way through his filmography. I have the, his DVD in somewhere here to watch. I I didn't watch it yet because I didn't know who were going to cover it on the pod. Gotcha. Yeah, I you have to find out, listeners, if it is going to be covered on the pod at the end of the episode. It's a movie I've actually seen before. It's one of those that my dad pulled me in and he said, "Hey, check this out." It was on HBO or something when I was younger. And it's one that I definitely want to get back to because I only learned in recent years about how beloved it is. Um, when I haven't seen Unbreakable again, I did watch The Happening. I joined you. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And enjoying that incredible film. <laughs> yes, Which The Happening. I was surprised to see Jeremy Strong show up from uh, from Succession, from last year's Armageddon time. He, he shows up as a, as a private in the army. I had dessert with someone from work. What? No. <laughs> yeah, Christian, I'm pretty sure you and I would have been uh, better suited to acting in that movie than <laughs> Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel or uh, John Leguizamo. A thing I thought I would never say because who who in the world of their right mind hates John Leguizamo? But nobody is firing at all cylinders in that movie. I also watched The Visit, Wait. which was okay. his like big comeback after all of his crappy movies, and I'm a fan. In, in The Happening... You know when they're knocking at that boarded-up house? Yes. And all of a sudden, you see the shotgun? Yes. I did not expect that. No, no. I, there, are two, there are two death scenes in that that I was like, no. I'm not at that moment, should I not? Um, all right, we should start talking about this movie. We should. We're, uh, we're going to get back to the sixth sense here, folks. I would recommend The Visit, though, if you, if you get a chance to check it out. It's uh, small... True, true blue found footage horror movie and it totally works i think people would also find old entertaining i know I, you know the the reactions to old were so disappointing because people were so many people were majorly down on it and enough people were positive about it that i finally checked it out on hbo max well after it was out of theaters and i liked it a lot it's <laughs> like man i wish i had actually gone to support this in theaters but Obviously, it did very well in theaters, and he made another movie, Knock at the Cabin, which we covered last week. So, all is well in the world of M. Night Shyamalan. All right, Christian, are you ready for your opening question here? Yes. Which I alluded to early on, and by alluded to, I mean outright stated that this was going to be the question. So, here we go. <laughs> I was going to ask if you knew the twist going into the movie, so I'm glad to know that you did know the twist, as did I. But both of us were watching this movie for the first time, and so... There was a degree of the element of surprise that we lost. Sometimes that is okay. And so I am curious, Christian, how did knowing the twist affect your experience of watching this movie? And do you feel like it helped or hurt? Okay, I think that it hurt partly because... Can, can we just spoil what the twist is? Yeah, I, I gave that spoiler warning at the beginning, folks. Here's another one. Spoiler warning. We're going to talk about the full story of this movie. We're not going to hide the twist. It's been out for 25 years. Go check it out and come back. Okay, Christian. Feel free. So at the beginning of this movie, we see Bruce Willis hanging out with his wife. He's just won this award. And then someone who was a... He, he's a child psychologist. And then someone who was apparently a previous patient of his comes and is very upset and ends up shooting him. We then see Bruce Willis in subsequent scenes uh, studying and trying to get to better know Haley Joel Osment's character. So uh, I should probably call them by their character names. So Malcolm is shot, comes back. Malcolm is trying to study and get to know Cole. The twist is... That just as Cole has said that he sees dead people, which is true, he is a little boy who has the ability to see people who do not know they're dead and they talk to him. He is seeing Malcolm, who was actually killed during that first scene. Now, because I knew that Malcolm was dead the whole time, I kind of... It became a little obvious some of the different tricks that were being employed. Um, for example, he's not talking to anyone really who isn't Cole or no one's having a conversation with him. Um, he is pretty isolated. And it's it, it whenever he's around other people, no one's acknowledging him. 
And so it felt like going in that did ruin part of my experience. I will say though, this movie is so incredibly weird and eerie and, and, and kind of, it, it definitely has horror movie leanings to it that pushing all of that aside, there is impeccable craft in this film. So I appreciated the craft, but definitely my enjoyment of the movie went down. I honestly think that we're in very similar positions because knowing the twist, I was sort of watching the movie to understand how they did it. And you notice very early on that Willis's character is just, you know, Malcolm is not speaking to any adults. And he has a couple of scenes with his wife and they're, they're a little bit off putting. Obviously there's one notably during their anniversary where he comes into this restaurant and sits down across the table from her. And we're sort of understanding that, or rather we're supposed to think that they are having some trouble in their marriage since the incident where he got shot and he's trying to talk with her and she's not replying. And eventually the check comes, she grabs it immediately before he can reach out and try to get it. And she says, happy anniversary. And what we know at the end of the movie, of course, is that she is out celebrating their anniversary alone, missing him, wishing he were there. But what it feels like in the moment is that he has majorly let her down, showing up late to their anniversary dinner. She's just going to leave and let him figure it out. And watching it, I think I gained some appreciation for those moments because you realize what Shyamalan is doing. But it also does make it disappointing because you're not, you know that you're not going to be surprised by the explanation of what's going on. And I feel like that twist is really one of the things that powered this movie to the success that it did. Because although this is, of course, a pre-MCU and Fast and Furious time period of the movies, of course, $670 million is still an enormous amount of money to make at the box office. And I feel like it's the twist that really drove the word of mouth for this movie. Did you go see The Sixth Sense? Did you see that new Bruce Willis movie? Oh my gosh, you've got to see it. You've got to see it. The ending is crazy. You know, I feel like there were so many conversations that happened like that that got people to go see this movie. And not just people who like horror movies, of course, but this was received widely. So, I, you know, I am a little sad that I knew the twist going in because it would have been nice to have been fully surprised. But like you said, there's enough here to offset it where you can still appreciate quite a bit about the movie even if the story doesn't have its full impact. So there are there are two movies that are going to come to mind, both of which have been discussed on this podcast to some extent, and I want to know what your opinions are when I bring these movies up. So um, let me bring up Spider-Man No Way Home. Okay. Because the, there's no twist, but there is a surprise and speculation that there are going to be three Spider-Men in that movie. Now drove box office going into it but the movie did not hinge on its twist and the reason that that movie comes to mind is because i feel like to some extent because of the internet era you can't necessarily hinge on a twist anymore because it, it's it's not going to survive it's not going to thrive and and i i will say i know that we we both like that movie to varying you know i love that movie i know that you are more muted on it but if it was just that, like, there's a big reveal that there are three Spider-Men at the end of the movie, it's not going to have the same effect as, as the fact that the three of them are doing stuff together. Now, the other one is On Sandi, which we gave a full review to from Denis Villeneuve, or directed by Denis Villeneuve and written by a playwright whose name I am so sorry that I have forgotten. Um, there is a major twist in that movie. Yes, there is. However... That film is also beautifully acted and also just one of the most dire, dramatic things I have seen in such a long time. That um, it's not all about the twist, you know. It's, 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 the movie takes a ma the, the twist makes that movie way better. But you've still been along for the ride. Actually, I feel like Ansan D might be the better film to compare this to. Um, in terms of, but even then, I don't think Ansan D depended on its twist. There was more movie after the twist that we could count on. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of what you're identifying here is 
the way that internet culture obviously has affected the way that we see movies. Something like Spider-Man No Way Home is starting to get spoiled immediately. And no matter how much people get online and, and plead, please don't tweet spoilers for Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> or you'll see people who put up their list of words they blocked on Twitter and they blocked Spider-Man, No Way Home, Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, Tom Holland. Like they block all of these things so they don't have to see people tweeting about it. So it's, you got to really get in and see something opening weekend to understand a twist. But with something like Ansan D, of course, that is a movie that was made outside of Hollywood. And Denis Villeneuve's films after it are much more widely known. It, this, that's the film that broke him out on an international level, kind of outside the Canadian filmmaking scene, to the best of my knowledge from what I can remember. And he's had other movies with twist endings, of course. And even some of those, those, some of those movies, like Arrival. Arrival is not necessarily as widely known for its twist ending. Um, and so, even though the twist is major in Arrival, the twist is major in Arrival. But more people, I feel like more people leave that movie talking about Amy Adams and her performance or yeah. the the aliens and their language than they do the twist ending. So, it's for big movies, you kind of got to go see it fast so you don't get things spoiled for you. But for movies with true twist endings, I think sometimes they just aren't happening in as big budget of movies, and so they could be preserved. Something like. Ansandi, you know, this smaller, epic in scale, but smaller in, in budget and reach uh, international film. But so we've, we've, by the way, the, 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 for Ansandi, it was based on the play from Wajimi Wada, and uh, the screenplay was by Denis Villeneuve, but also co written by Valerie Bogron Champagne. And um, going back to The Sixth Sense, I guess knowing that, Right, and we've we've spent a, a while talking about how this twist is so easy to spoil and does affect viewership. Does 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 that affect the movie? Like basically, it's it's a well constructed movie. I don't think you would say it's not. I'm not going to say it's not. But then, should the movie have not relied as much on that Bruce Willis is dead the whole time? I mean, that's one of people's criticisms of Shyamalan is that so many of his movies rely on twist endings and they can be very feast or famine where either you create this movie that makes you want to go back and rewatch it and figure out all the little details you missed or it makes it a one-timer for you where you say oh that's that was neat but <laughs> now i don't need to see this again because i'm gonna go watch the whole time knowing that he was he was dead the entire time and for me i think i I, like I said, I see the merits of the movie, and even if you're kind of watching to see how they hide it and how they hide the fact that Willis's character is dead. I will say, I it is tough because at times you are wondering, man, why is, for example, Cole's mother never speaking to this doctor that ostensibly she has reached out to for help in treating her child or that she has been put in contact with by the hospital because there is a moment where you know Cole goes to the hospital in this movie, but he's met the doctor beforehand. So, you know, you start to wonder these things. And I feel like in the moment, it would have been something that you, you're kind of noodling on. You're trying to figure out in the theater, like, why is nobody talking to this guy? Like, what's going on? But now knowing it, it's just, it's laid out bare for you. And I feel oh, like okay. it's, it, it while the movie is well-constructed, and I would agree with that, the twist isn't necessarily the most well hidden i've 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 come to another movie that that i've thought about before in terms of um comparing this one to the prestige because the prestige for the longest time you're thinking who is this weird looking dude next to christian bale now re-watching re the prestige i love it more each time because i think that there are cool hidden tropes as to like his relationships with people and how you know what the difference is between the two of them and honestly the commitment to the bit right and the prestige especially using that um that twist in the movie uh which were unintentional and i was spoiling the prestige for people who haven't seen it sorry folks but the the differing relationship that rebecca hall has as the wife of alfred borden to you know borden and fallon and how they 
how they use her in that story. I think sometimes it's been criticized because obviously her, her character dies in the movie and it's criticized for like, it uses her death to develop the male character. But I think her performance is so good and it, it really gives an emotional center uh, for, for that, for that character, for the Borden character. Um, and you go back and rewatch it and those scenes hit harder once you know have an understanding of what's going on with their family. And I think it's the multi-dimensionality of being able to interact with multiple people because the thing is, Bruce Willis, who is doing very strong acting, who is, I, I enjoy a lot in this movie, part, and honestly, Haley Joel Osment is is fantastic. Like, the, the I, I have seen Haley Joel Osment in modern things, mainly as, like, a guest on Silicon Valley or a guest on The Boys, or a, I don't, I don't, Haley Joel Osment's career post AI, I have no clue what. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, let's talk about it for a second, because he was one of the biggest actors in the world before he could drive a car. <laughs> I mean, he gets Oscar nominated for The Sixth Sense, he had previously appeared in Forrest Gump as Forrest Jr., and then he was in other movies, of course, around this time, like AI, which we covered on the show way back when. But after his role in the movie Secondhand Lions with Michael Caine and I think Robert Duvall, he really, his career really slows down. Notably, he has done a lot of voice work, most importantly in the Kingdom Hearts franchise. So shout out to all my fellow Kingdom Hearts nerds. <laughs> he's the voice of Sora Amen. and has been the entire way through. Because he's loyal. He is loyal. And he also probably needs the work. But after Secondhand Lions, he makes another indie movie when he's a teenager in 2007 that does not get any traction and he just starts making fewer and fewer movies he's on a broadway makes his broadway debut in 2008 but that show is shut down after very very few performances and his career really falls off and as you've identified he's mostly playing bit parts in tv shows occasionally small appearances in movies has not really appeared in anything big or notable in a long time um Wait, okay, okay. I was, I'm wonder, so sorry. I was going to say, you, like, you, you wonder what's gone wrong. I think, obviously, you know, he had a, a legal run-in in his earlier years. He was caught driving under the influence. And, obviously, what happens so often with these young actors who get into the system is that bad things happen to them behind the scenes, whether it's being introduced to substances well before mm -hmm. they're even remotely close to being able to handle it, being taken advantage of by people financially being sexually or physically abused by people in the movie industry obviously we know a lot more about that issue now than we did in the 90s and so i feel bad for the guy because you, you can't help but think he was a victim of one of those things or maybe multiple and he maybe took a step back from lead acting roles to get out of the spotlight and kind of protect himself a little bit Maybe just because he was whatever. doing a lot of it when he was younger he didn't want to do a lot of it when he was older which is also a thing Absolutely. um be, because I guess it's it's when you're young and have massive success, it can cause a lot of stress and pressure. Though also, um, he's still probably figuring out his life, and maybe he likes acting, but realizes he doesn't love needing to be on twelve-hour sets every single moment of the day uh, or every single day. Um, no, the 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 only quick thing I wanted to add was I I realized that if he was Sora in Kingdom Hearts one and Sora in Kingdom Hearts two, we saw him hit puberty. We did. His voice changes from game to game. <laughs> Significantly. And, and, you know, uh, maybe he's, he's content to, to do vocal acting because he does a lot of it these days. Not only mm -hmm. when there's new Kingdom Hearts games, but he appeared in NBA 2K19. And he's made a lot of animated shows for Cartoon Network and I think some Netflix shows. Or, like I said, he's made small appearances in other things like two episodes of The Boys. So... Maybe that, that's just where he's content because he gets, I'm sure he got a lot of money from his early roles and he still hopefully gets residuals for them. The Sixth Sense is a movie that not only was it a huge success then, but of course it's still beloved now. And so people watch it on TV, they buy the DVD, and hopefully he's getting a cut of that as most actors uh, in leading roles do. And so he's probably fine financially and is content to have a, you know, a C-list career and more power to him if that's what he wants to do he's someone i like to see pop up in things when he does i i actually 
one role I recommend him in is in a really unusual miniseries called The Spoils of Babylon. Have you ever heard of this, Christian? I, I think I have heard of it, but I have no clue what it is. So it was, I don't see here, not written or produced by, but it starred Will Ferrell as this like blowhard author whose big famous romance novel was being adapted into like a TV show, basically. And they're making fun. It's it's a literal spoof of all of these kinds of stories. And Tobey Maguire and Kristen Wiig star in it as these, like, adopted siblings who fall in love with each other on this, like, Texas. They're part of this Texas oil family. And love it. It, it's, it is so unbelievably goofy. And they're making fun of all these stories and, like, soap operas that you can recognize. And... Um, Haley Joel shows up as the son of Kristen Wiig's character, but he's like her evil son, <laughs> and he is he is ridiculous in it. So if I, I watched it on Netflix uh, years ago, I don't think it's I don't know if it's available there right now. But if people want some adult Haley Joel Osment in their life, he's legitimately funny in that, and they should check it out anyway because it's so ridiculous. But <laughs> has not been seen that widely. I'm just a fan of it. They made a sequel series too, but I haven't I haven't seen it. It's called The Spoils Before Dying, which I haven't so. Who knows if we'll get around to that. But Haley Joel Osment, Christian, made this movie at a, a tenderly young age, you know, probably around 10 or 11. And I got to say, this guy is unbelievable. <laughs> and we identified that watching AI years ago, that he somehow carries this massive Steven Spielberg movie on his back when he was, this is two years after The Sixth Sense, so when he's 12 or whatever. And... You, just, you see the preternatural ability to act in, in The Sixth Sense. Cole has this horrific affliction where he is literally seeing ghosts and seeing them in a great touch by Shyamalan and his makeup team, seeing them kind of as they were when they died. So there's a battered woman with bruises all over her face. There's this child with a gunshot wound in the back of his head. There's... A, a little girl near the end of the movie who's like vomiting up in his room this like horrible ghost and seeing all of these horrific things you understand why he's so shell-shocked all the time and Osment not only carries that in a way that you know you've maybe seen before kids in horror movies who are being scared and all that but also brings such a a rich emotional depth to the kid and, uh, and it, the way that he kind of allows emotions to wash over his face, whether he's doing it intentionally or not as a, as a young actor, is so impressive. And it just he really blew me away here, especially the further we get into the movie and the more we get into his life. Because we definitely start a little more focused on Malcolm and, and Willis's character before the perspective starts to shift a little bit more into Cole's world about halfway through the movie. But... What did you make of his performance here, Christian? Because I came out of it totally understanding the Oscar nomination, uh, even despite his young age and how the Oscars don't always recognize young people like that. I, I'm curious about what you thought. So he's playing trauma really, really well because he is traumatized by what he is seeing. Now, of course, there's like the subtextual reading that this is like a, a movie about a kid using his imagination to get through the fact that his parents got divorced. And sure, like that's definitely in here, but the fact that at times he's almost paralyzed and he like sleeps in a tent that he made with his dog, the way that his voice will change also and how there's like a... Oh, a, a predisposition to be distrustful, especially from the first time that he meets Bruce Willis or the the time when he's just like at his desk looking at his teacher, calling him, what was it, Stuttering Stanley? Yeah. yeah. Honestly, one of the most unsettling scenes in the movie and there's no ghosts in it. And it works because he's that young and because he's that committed. His, the, the what is it? The thing that I always th okay Haley Joel Osment is very good at playing a kid who looks like he never smiles yeah. so that when he smiles you truly believe that something meaningful meaningful has occurred he he knows how to envelop himself in like the shadow and this wall that he holds up against people 
through just I, I, I don't know this this desire to to look into himself through how his eyes even shift from person to person or or how all of the scenes as Shaman shot them are mainly like him like I said with his dog that it's 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 really heartbreaking knowing that this kid is going through something right and I mean, the, the actual scares here that Shyamalan uses don't really kick in until about halfway through the movie, once we find out that Cole sees dead people. And he really puts us in this kid's shoes while we see kind of what he's seeing around his own home. And we get hints of it. There's a, a scene near the beginning of the movie where his mother is helping him get ready for school. She leaves the room. And comes back into the kitchen and kind of screams for a second because in the two seconds that she was out of the room, all of the cabinet and kitchen drawers have been opened up. And she's like, what were you looking for? And he has to just lies and covers it up and says, oh, I was looking for Pop-Tarts. And we, you know, we see we get some of these hints that something supernatural is going on. But once we find out and we start seeing these ghosts and being... Like, Shyamalan uses the camera to put us in Cole's POV as he kind of walks down the hallway a couple times. And he's starting to shoulder the movie. It, uh, Haley Joel Osment is. And it, it's it's such a impressive performance, again, from such a young kid. Because he's acting across from Bruce Willis, who's one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time. And Tony Collette, who was, I think, still at that point not widely known to American audiences. But obviously would become a, a beloved actress and has been acting for decades uh, now. And so being across from these two really talented actors and being the one who steals the show is, is so impressive. And, and we should mention Tony Collette also, who is doing phenomenal work here as a heartbroken mother who you can see the love that she has for her child. Every time he asks her, what's, what's exactly the thing that he asks her? It's like a, do you, are you mad at me or is it, um, it's something along the lines of, are you mad at me or are you disappointed in me? Yeah. And, and we should mention here, they, they've gone through a situation where Cole's father has left the family and left them on their own. So she's working two jobs to make ends meet. Cole's even, he's at this maybe like Catholic school or something like that. And it's unclear if he's there on a scholarship or if she's trying to like keep him in that school and pay for it and provide. So yeah, difficult situation, and and she brings a, again a lot of depth to this character where she could have just she could have just been the like screaming and scared mom in the horror movie, or she could have just been the this sort of classic archetype that we know this struggling single mother who's really trying to make ends meet for her kid, and she's just weeping and sobbing in every scene. But Colette brings a lot of reality and and groundedness to this woman, and we see the ways where she cares so deeply for her son. But she also has this tougher side to her that's been formed through being a single mother, through providing for her child, and being left by someone. And we see that hardness come out from time to time as well. And both her and Cole have these very realistic moments uh, across the kitchen table as they, as he tries to kind of let her into what's happening but knows that he can't and and she tries to understand why these strange things are happening around the house and it's getting angry with him and and sending him to his room and all that there's just this they have great chemistry and colette is so good here Uh, i kind of looked into this and she had been making movies throughout the 90s but a lot of them were from her native land of australia so she's making um yeah, she had been acting, but not a ton of roles outside of Australia. There, Of course, there were a few, but this is her really big breakthrough moment. Um, okay, so Tony Collette is going to be in a movie soon called Mafia Mama. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for it. I have not. So it follows an American woman who inherits her grandfather's mafia empire in Italy. Guided by the firm's trusted consigliere, she hilariously defies everyone's expectations, including her own as the new head of the family business. Sign me up, Christian. I'm there. Oh, when I, yeah, I saw this, I saw this trailer yesterday. I'm so happy. I like amazed. It played right after the cocaine bear trailer. Inc- which, <laughs> incredible. Oh, no, but yes, you can also just tell how Tony Collette's heart is breaking every time her son is basically 
you know, she, she can tell that her son has something going on and that he is not opening up to her. And in the moment when he finally reveals that he can see dead people, in the moment when he reveals that he can see ghosts and he talks about his grandma, which is her, uh, no, 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 her grandma. No, it's, it's his grandma and her. Mother. It's his grandma, her mother. Okay. His grandma, her mother. The tears that she is crying as she understands and he says something exceedingly profound, which I mean, that one, we don't need to, we don't need to spoil here what he says, but the story that he's telling about what her mother said to him to tell her, she's not just crying because it's a profound story. I think there's also that element of she's finally able to be with her son in a way in which there had been a wall before. And so the, this is, yes, this is, this is a journey in which you are rooting for the family. You're, you're, you're kind of like wanting this kid's trauma to dissipate. Um, that scene is one of the best in the movie. And mm-hmm. it's our last scene with him, actually. It's really resolving a lot of what's been, been going on in the story. And it is so touching to see the, the recognition and the emotions rolling over Lynn, who's, who's Colette's character, rolling over Lynn. And Cole, Osmond, keeps him focused on what's happening and, and talking through what he sees and providing evidence to how he knows that he sees ghosts and sharing this little insight with his mother from her mother who had long since passed away. It's a, it's an incredible scene and it, I'm glad you brought it up too, because it introduces us to another one of Shyamalan's tendencies. Obviously he's very famous for his twist endings, but he is also famous for blending the supernatural and the scary with the sentimental and his movies so often take sentimental turns and get very cheesy very quickly (laughs) and even in some of the movies that you know that we've seen from him recently i think knock at the cabin maybe avoids this with its ending but it's still a hopeful ish ending right and i was gonna say even the visit a movie that i've seen but i know that you haven't almost like ruins the movie with its ending (laughs) in my opinion and it's because Shyamalan chooses to go to a sentimental place the happening obviously ends on a very sentimental moment actually I will say the happening has a sentimental moment and it should end but then it goes to another final scene (laughs) it's like M. Night what are you doing Um, but he loves to blend these things and so I'm curious how you're you're I think you kind of indicated this, but did the way that things resolve emotionally work for you as well, even amidst this twist ending that is unfolding? And it really doesn't get revealed what's happening until the final scene between Willis and his wife, who we should mention is played by Olivia Williams, who only has a few scenes, but it's very effective in those small scenes. Yeah. So did it work for you, this kind of like mingling of the sentimental and the supernatural at the end here? So it affected me when it came to Haley Joel Osment and his mom. I, it did not affect me when it came to Bruce Willis. And I think that's partially because, yeah, you know, he's dead. So, when, I mean, it, 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 I, the more I think about it, the more, the more just knowing everything made me appreciate Bruce Willis and his scenes with Haley Joel Osment, but not his scenes with anyone else. Um, Okay, I have a question for you, which maybe goes into... I don't know if these are the laws of ghosts or not. Okay. He, like, threw a rock at the window. Yeah. Yeah, I got got the sense he maybe, like, slammed his fist on it. Or, okay. And it, like, cracks appear. Yes. So, is that supposed to happen? With a yeah. ghost? Yeah, we, we see throughout the movie that in, in this particular world, ghosts can affect the real world. So oh, like cold, the temperature drops. Yeah. The temperature drops. Or the cabinets and the drawers open up in the kitchen that one day. There's a, there's a moment between Cole and Lynn where Lynn is asking what happened to this pendant of hers that her mother loved. And Cole has not told her that he sees ghosts at this point. And so he has to sort of lie about it and say he didn't steal it. He didn't know what's going on. He, he didn't steal it. But we find out, we understand at the end that the ghost of her mother 
has been taken the pendant because she loves it so much. It's this little heirloom that she passed down to Lynn. And so we do understand that ghosts can interact with the physical world. But that so that Willis kind of he caused that to happen, but people would have just seen the glass crack suddenly and, and not know what had happened. So okay. You're right. That is on me for not picking that up. I guess it's it's okay, but yeah, to wrap up what I what I was saying before, I, I, I don't know the 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 Bruce Willis scene with his wife did not hit me. Like I'm happy that they were happy or that he was able to move on, but I mainly was happy that Cole was able to trust and be with his mom. Yeah, I I agree, and I do kind of wish that we had ended on the Sears, but uh, also great last name. Cole Sear, do you get it? He's I, I, I got, I got it, I got it. Uh, so, in a way, I wish we could have ended there, but the twist still has to happen, of course. And we have to know what's going on with with the star of the movie, Bruce Willis. So, I, I'm a little bit with you there, and I have to say, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of Bruce Willis's performance here, and I do know that his presence, despite all that Hollywood drama behind the scenes. His presence here helped this movie get made, helped it get off the ground, helped it become the success that it was, and he's not bad by any means. I do wonder what a different actor could have done with the part. because Recast it. Recast I, it right now. Well, Christian, I, I can't think of back to who had the juice in 1999 to credibly play a child psychologist. <laughs> but <clears throat> Christian Bale. Could this movie have been better with Christian Bale? As the, no, yes. because he was like 20 years old. and Not that young, but he was making American Psycho in 1999. He would not have made sense as Dr. Malcolm Crow. But I, I just American Psycho didn't come out until 2001, sir. Okay, he was maybe he was in pre-production. Anyway, he was even younger by that by that point. Um, so I just think that maybe Willis, his strengths sometimes as an actor rely on his comedic chops and his his kind of action star persona. He, he's been he's been good in a lot of different types of movies. This particular one, he wasn't the best fit to me. Like I said, I don't think he's bad. And so ending on him and his wife, obviously, like, in the moment would have been so mind-blowing. Like, imagining myself sitting there in 99 with a theater full of people losing their minds, popcorn spilling everywhere because we're all getting raucous as we realize that Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. What? You know, I, I, I think that moment maybe hits harder if you don't understand. Like, you don't know the twist and you don't understand what's going on. Okay. Let me, let me throw another name out at you. Okay. Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. Um, that that's a more interesting one. In and by that point, he could still probably credibly play uh, <laughs> a person that, like Willis's age, like in his forties. So maybe. And I, I think Ford could have had some interesting interplay with Haley Joel Osment. Uh, so who knows? I, I I think a crotchety Harrison Ford-esque character would have made sense here. Who knows, Christian? All right. That's it. This makes sense. There's, there, I mean, there's there's more to discuss here. Like the actual filmmaking with Shyamalan, you know, uh, we, we, we got to wrap things up here based on our timelines. But there's some interesting usage of the color red. If you want to check that out, folks, where Shyamalan often uses red to indicate that something supernatural is about to happen or is happening. And it's this burst of color in an otherwise kind of blue and gray movie. The atmosphere here is really well created, I think. And this ghost story it, it is very... It, it, the story and the, the filmmaking are pretty matched well. And so the last thing I want to mention, too, is we get this bit from Cole about how ghosts, they, the ghosts that he sees don't understand that they're dead. They don't know it. And that's, of course, partly why we get the twist ending that we do. But I think that Shyamalan uses that pretty well with the editing, where we see Malcolm kind of going from moment to moment in his life. But we don't really, we don't really wonder, like, uh, okay, why is this guy just like not picking up on the fact that he's sleeping by his wife every night, but she's never saying anything to him. They're having breakfast in the morning. She's never saying anything to him. And what we come to understand is that it's because he's sort of kind of, he's, he's like entering into these moments, not really understanding that he's sort of floating through time and space as a ghost. And I, I, someone else had commented on that. I think when I was looking at letterboxd reviews for this movie, and I appreciated that call out because I think it's a, a nifty way to use editing that we don't always think about just kind of situating us in this ghostly sense of time so that is the sixth sense it is not streaming anywhere right now i don't think but it is easily rentable easily 
uh, available. Christian, did you get it from the library or did you rent it? I did get it from the library. I got that in Unbreakable from the library. There you go. Check your local library, folks. This is, you know, this is a very famous movie, easy to buy as well. So check it out literally from the library or rent it, buy it, do what you can. Next week on the Cinema Drip Podcast, the M. Night Shyamalan blend of the month continues, and we are going to be, unfortunately, skipping over Unbreakable. If we had more time, I would love to get into Unbreakable and the franchise that unintentionally spawned, but we're actually going to be looking at Signs, which is available on HBO Max and follows Mel Gibson as he looks to protect his family when some mysterious crop circles show up in their family farm. And this is about some other things that people might know in terms of what's causing those crop circles, but <clears throat> we'll, we'll discuss that next week. Wait, I have a question for you. Have you seen, did you watch War of the Worlds, the Tom Cruise one? I, you know, I may have seen part of it when I was younger, but I haven't seen it in full, I don't think, and I definitely have not seen it kind of like consciously as an adult, so. Okay, interesting double feature for you would be the happening in War of the Worlds. So... <laughs> I mean, signs of more of the worlds too, honestly. <laughs> yes, no, that's true. All right. Um, so that one is streaming on HBO Max. If you do have access to that service, definitely take advantage of that. You can also, I'm sure, rent this and, and check it out from the library as well. The Happening is streaming on Hulu. <laughs> the Happening is on Hulu. Got to check out The Happening. Alrighty, Christian, that is our show. So, of course, folks, if you're still listening along, we do thank you for your support. We love to you know, watch these movies and uh, share our discussions with you, and so it means a lot that there are folks out there listening. There are a few things that you can do to support the podcast. Number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and of course, leave us a rating or a review if applicable. Helps us grow and reach new listeners on those platforms, and it warms our little heart to do so. So thank you for doing that, those of you that have. And if you wouldn't mind, new listeners, please do uh, check us out, subscribe, review, rate, everything you can. It's appreciated. You can also send us an email to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. We are regularly checking that inbox for listener feedback and want to make sure that we're talking about movies that you want to watch too and hear discussions about. And so especially if you have some ideas for our Shyamalan kind of bonus episode, maybe you want us to cover one of his uh, bad movies like The Last Airbender or After Earth with Will and Jaden Smith. Or if you have a different idea that we could use for that last moment. You know, we'd love to get your ideas for what could actually continue to make this show work. So please do send us your thoughts to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania comes out soon. Apparently it is it is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Indeed it is. Only the second MCU film to be released with a rotten rating. After so, Eternals, right? Yes, after Eternals. So What did the Incredible Hulk get is what I'm wondering at this point. Low 60s. Checked it out yesterday. No, there's... <laughs> no. Christian, Iron Man 2 is certified fresh at 71%. So sometimes the Rotten Tomato critical ratings are not to be trusted. <laughs> Christian, I actually have something to share with you. Sure. I've been dead this whole time. Ooh. And until next time, this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast. <laughs>